I'm Peter Alakawi and welcome to Life School, the podcast. Each episode, I'll be chatting openly and honestly with a different guest about a whole host of purposeful topics. From personal success and failure stories, to relationship advice, tips and tricks for entrepreneurs, to professional and practical guidance on living a more fulfilled and happy life. I'll be speaking to men and women from all walks of life, all with unique experiences they want to share in the hope of inspiring you. I hope throughout this series you can take away some valuable nuggets of wisdom to help you navigate through life's many twists, turns and lessons. Here at Life School we are all about the business of learning. So let's get on with the show. And remember, everything you go through grows you. It's been a rather busy summer for me, so I haven't had a chance to publish a new episode of DXB Women Who Inspire Me for a couple of months now. But I'm so happy to be back with a brand new episode with a fabulous new guest, Natasha D'Souza. Natasha is a business journalist, strategist and presenter focused on startups, technology and innovation in emerging markets. She writes for numerous publications, both in the region and globally, profiling startups, technology, and the culture of innovation and leadership in the Middle East. Commencing her career in Washington, DC, Natasha worked with global leaders in the business, media, and international development sectors, including the Corporate Executive Board, the BBC, and the Kennedy family. In 2007, she joined the Harvard Medical School Dubai Center, working on the region's foremost greenfield project to establish Dubai as the center for academic medical research and practice in the Middle East. It was fascinating getting to know Natasha and her global way of thinking really inspired me to think beyond just the city I live in. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the wonderful Natasha D'Souza. Enjoy. Natasha, welcome to Life School. Good afternoon. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me today and giving me your time. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for this. Of course. Tea. Please make yourself at home it's and I'm perfect. so excited for this. Okay, I really need to eat this right now. <laughs> I've literally come here to talk to you to decompress. This, this is a safe space. Um, when I was researching for your questions, I was going through your bio and social media platforms mm-hmm. and I noticed you describe yourself as the intersectionalist. I've said yes. that right. Yes. And I personally find this quite fascinating. Can you shed some light on what this means exactly and why you describe yourself as this? I'm glad you're asking me that. So it's interesting, that video in particular did get quite a few comments and I think reactions because of that term, the intersectionalist. And it's something that I came up with, I think looking back throughout my career at the different choices that I made career-wise, I've always been that person who goes where opportunity takes me or who likes to make the most of the opportunities I have available depending on where I am. It's never been about being in a specific field. It's about excelling at whatever opportunity comes my way. So for instance, when I look back now, my career started off in in DC, in in Washington, DC. And at the time as a 21 year old, of course, you're just soaking it all in. I'm, I'm living in the world's most powerful city i mean i have i'm working four blocks from the white house at the time i remember and you're in a city where like the world's movers and shakers are you know a couple of blocks down from you 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 rub shoulders with them you see them around and i think realizing i was in that city very early on i wasn't the kind of person who thought this is going to be you know i'm i'm in this role at the time i was doing business intelligence research for a think tank in dc 
And my approach was never, well, I'm going to work here for about two or three years and then my next move will be this. And then after that, I'm going to do this. I didn't have the next 10 years of my life planned out. Was that down to age as well? Uh, no, it wasn't. I, you know, I'm one of the older millennials. So our generation still was very much fed that narrative that you had to kind of figure out what your niche or focus mm. was and you had to spend about five, six years in it and grow, move through the ranks. My thinking was I'm living in D.C. There's so many opportunities here. Like how do I make the most of what's in the city so that I become the best version of myself? So that literally was my approach. So it was very strategic. At the mm. time, it was very intuitive. When I look back now, it, it seems quite strategic because when I lived in that city, I got to work not just on the business front, but in the humanitarian sector as well. I worked for a nonprofit that was founded by a member of the Kennedy family doing disability wow. rights research. And I also worked at the BBC briefly in their news bureau doing production research, which was a oh, pipe what dream. What was that like? That was amazing being in a fast paced studio in DC, obviously getting, you know, doing news research on the fly, preparing for the day's, you know, news programs, making sure the reporters have all of the background information they need, you know, meeting, interfacing with guests, preparing them before they go into the studio. It was, I loved it. I've just always been that person who likes to synthesize mm. masses of information and make the complex really simple and then make it tangible and actionable in some way. Mm. So whether that's I think great journalism is meant to do that. But I think even in the business world, a lot of, I think what I've enjoyed is being able to move really quickly through complex things and then make them simple and mm. actionable. God, that must have been an incredible experience. It was, it was. So when you ask about intersectional sections, mm. I've just found that with time, if you notice in the world, like there's so many areas and facets of whether it's business or technology or health or food that are all just interfacing with each other now mm. i'm just got back say about a week ago from hong kong and that was where i was hosting the foods future summit where we're looking at the future of food in the world yeah, i was we following you while you were an there. array of alternative meats and cell cultured fish and these new ways mm. of producing you know, food that we assume will be more sustainable, but we're also asking questions like, what does that mean for the yeah. long-term health of society? You know, what about our existing environmental um, abilities? Like, should we not think about soil degradation, etc.? So all of these things are just interfacing with each other, technology, uh, farming, the environment, mm. climate change. And I found increasingly that as a person, whatever role I've done I've always worn that hat of being the intersectionalist so looking at how things overlap and intersect and influence each other mm. and I guess that then doesn't limit you in no. your own career as well no it's never you don't have to me, just stay in one lane but it has meant that I have had to face people with limited thinking or mm. limited ways of perceiving me and how do you deal with that because I can imagine if someone isn't on the same sort of wavelength as you, that could be quite frustrating. True. I So here's the thing. Early in my career, I was kind of spoiled in the sense that I'm a very, again, very intuitive, gut-driven person. Mm. Whenever I've resonated with somebody and the wavelength that just matches, then people just have created opportunities for me. And I was always that person who was like, don't look at the role or mm. the company necessarily. Like, go work for people who are exhibiting themselves or proving themselves to be true leaders 
So I've been lucky in my 20s to have had at least three or four of these kind of leadership role models who met me. They liked my energy. They liked the mm. questions I was asking. And they said, you know what, let's, let's try to create this role for you. And you tell us what you like to do. And you, you kind of put this role together. And so it was, it was a dream come true. I mean, I don't think that happens very often. I don't think it does. And where does that come from, though? Because often in your early 20s, you don't know yourself 100% and you might be a little bit unsure and you might be insecure. So where does that sort of, I think we all have intuition, but it's how you sort of tap into it. Where do you think that came from? Are you just an old soul? I don't know about old soul. I can be perhaps a little bit of a romantic soul sometimes. (laughs) But I mean, when it comes to work, I think it was just knowing what I love doing. Yeah. It was as simple as that. It was like, I'll give you an example. So when I moved from DC to Dubai, it was very, it was part serendipitous and part this as well, Mm -hmm. which is I happened to have a meeting with a 70 plus ex-cardiothoracic surgeon from Harvard Medical School who was now leading the charge for Harvard Medical School Dubai Center. So he was the one tasked with overseeing that relationship, that consulting, you know, Mm. relationship between Harvard Medical School and the government of Dubai with all the grandiose plans that we had at the time for academic medicine Mm. and medical research in Dubai. And it literally was me just sending an email saying, hi, you know, this is me and this is the kind of stuff that I did in DC and I'm really interested by, you know, your mission, your vision, and I'd love to know more about what you're up to. It literally was that. And he traveled so much, he happened to be in town. He said, come meet with me. I met with him over an hour. We spoke nothing about what are you recruiting for? What mm. are you looking for? It was just a conversation about what he and I both thought about the world, about the economy. And then he said, listen, I really, I really like you know, your energy and you seem to be that kind of person who likes to look at the landscape, figure out what needs to get done and just goes and does mm. it. And you know, this is the stage we're at as an organization. And I think here's a role. It may not be exactly what you have in mind, but I think you can take that and, you know, turn it into something Mm. else and the role at the time was working on policies and procedures for um health for medical research in in dubai at the time which is not something i've ever done so i've studied public health but this was my first time actually working in a Mm. healthcare setting but again it's like anything else i mean you're not building a spaceship you go in there be like what do i need to do i need to figure out what policies and procedures are what are best in class policies and procedures in the world let me go let me study what's done elsewhere and you know how best we apply it here and that's literally like how it's very much like building the bicycle while you're riding it and I that think was your first role here that was my first role here so this was march 2007 okay and i was yeah i just moved here from dc like i that was literally the role that made me decide fine i'll move because I knew that even in the U.S. at that time, it'd be really hard to work under someone that senior yeah. and that distinguished um, at that age for me. So I thought I'm, I'm going to do that, and that was just one thing led to another. Someone else heard about me. Thought the rest that, is history. It's kind of it was a domino say. effect, but yeah. you know, it can only carry you so far, right? I mean, I, I was lucky, and at some point, of course, say about seven years after that, things changed too. Where when you work with leaders who recognize your potential it makes a lot of things easier at work. 
Um, but yeah. then people don't always stay. People go, things change, leadership structures change, and you're not always necessarily working with mm. someone who kind of gets you and what you can bring to the table. So sometimes, yes, you will have to deal with people who don't see you that way. I mean, have a limiting or preconceived notions about yeah. what you're able to do. And I think, I think one should always learn how to upward manage mm. and how to manage those people. I personally don't believe in spending too much time or energy transforming my, someone else's mindset. I'd rather go where I'm needed and where yeah. I'm valued and spend my energy like towards that, basically. Yeah. On yourself. Yeah. And so how did you end up in journalism? Uh, it was a push by a friend. So there's a bit of a backstory here. When I actually went to university, it was because I wanted to be a journalist. So I specifically applied to schools where I knew the program was really good. And this is in the States? This is in the States, yeah. So I ended up getting into UNC, which has like a 200 plus year history of its program. And sat, you know, I declared journalism as my major. And I think about the first week or two weeks at school where... An advisor told me, and rightly so, I'm so glad he did, that you don't need to study journalism to be a journalist. You need to study the world. Mm. And I was like, that's actually a good suggestion. Yeah. And, and I, I was lucky I was in a school that had other really strong programs as well. And to be fair, the American health education system gives you that leeway to experiment, and at least for the first two years of being in university. So I, I took advantage of that, and I declared economics and public health as majors. Again, because I knew public health has so much in it. I mean, when I was mm. studying it at the time, you look at how diseases are prevalent in populations. You have to understand the environment. You have to understand, to some level, you know, biochemistry, how policy works, you know, in, in a nation, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a mix, again, of a lot of those things. So I knew it would keep me and my very curious mind yeah. happy, happy. But journalism, so for a long time, I never wrote. This was specifically in university. And I think I was always drawn to the communication side of things, even in business roles. I was always that person. Somebody would want me to like, can you please look at this email? Can you please look mm -hmm. at this like, you know, proposal? Can you? And um, I loved it. It came very naturally to me. I loved also being in, in meetings where you're meeting external parties in negotiations um, with other parties. I loved the process of, of crafting a message mm -hmm backing that message up with proof points and then being able to communicate it towards a goal. Like it's not just positioning, it's we have something we want to achieve, which is if I'm going to go into a meeting with a bank because I'm negotiating that I need millions from them towards a real estate mm. project in Dubai, then here are my proof points. Here's how we construct our narrative, go into a meeting, boom, boom, boom. And I can very much see you being the person that then delivers that. Well, you have to. Because some people like... To be behind the scenes, though. Right. But I, I like can, both. I like both. Yeah, I yeah. can see that you very much, those sort of meet. And I can see you, you enjoy that part of the process as well. The actual, the actual communication of it. I love the communication of it. And I love being able to take what we talk about and make that real. So yeah. Even in my career now. So when I say I'm an intersectionalist, like I've deliberately created it that way. Where I knew that I'm not a traditional journalist. I did not go to journalism school I've never spent my entire career only writing about something. I've actually worked within business. I've worked within startups. I have been in boardrooms. I understand the kind of hard business questions that get asked. And I also understand um, what it takes to be able to achieve business outcomes. 
I see the role that communication plays in them, but it's also a lot more than that. And so as a journalist, when I'm looking at a subject or whether I'm profiling a leader or a business, my way of questioning and approaches are a little different, you know, because you're not just always going to go by that. Sometimes journalism tends to remain very descriptive. And mm-hmm. I think um, there is more power, I think, in, in, in digging deeper and in being a lot more analytical. So yeah. I've never been the kind of journalist who like to do the whole let's turn around a story in 24 hours. Most of those news stories tend to be very descriptive. Yeah. Um, I'm more like, let's take a step back and let's look at the story like one, two weeks in and then see what's mm. changed. I'll give you an example. Earlier this year when Pope Francis came to the UAE, I had the chance to consult to some uh, consult for the, the vicariate here on communications, obviously. So we had to work with the Vatican team on the messaging, you know, what would the wow. what would the bishop say, et cetera, et cetera, at on this at this huge occasion. And of course, as part of that, you interface with a lot of journalists because the Vatican flies journalists over on the on the papal plane, you know, here, et cetera. So it was it was a fun, fun, fun experience. But at the same time, what I saw is like this is what mainstream journalism is, which is you have this mass of journalists who are now, you know, in, in the stadium, we're there for the papal mass, everybody's like on their computer. Some are like sort of paying attention to the mass, some are like on their computer trying to file a story, someone's like trying to find a source to do an interview with, mm-hmm. and it's very much like, I have to get stuff out first. Yeah, it's, it's like, who can all- be the quickest? Exactly, and I'm like, well, maybe what you're presenting quickest isn't really maybe the most well thought or the deepest or the freshest take. And mm-hmm. before the mass was even over, they're already being, you know, herded out of the stadium because they need to get back into the plane before the Pope gets to the plane and they fly back to the Vatican. And that really is a lot of, I think, you know, this kind of quick turnaround journalism, breaking news story, etc. And a lot of those stories don't dig deeper sometimes. Like sometimes you have to ask, I find a lot of it is telling communities what we know, what mm-hmm. we see as journalists versus asking communities what do they want to know from a piece of so journalism is changing do you ever feel slightly restricted here because obviously the sort of media landscape is very protected here yes do you how does that impact the work you do i mean you have an international audience but this is your base i'm based here but i was very conscious about two three years ago um to not write only for regional publications one is because as a journalist, if you want to challenge yourself, you need to be writing for under editors who have been worked some of the largest mm. bureaus in the world. Like I wanted that experience of working with senior editors who've written for the BBC or Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal, what yeah. have you. Um, those who've written at bureaus you know, around the world on complex business stories um, that have global resonance. And I also realized that you're right, this is, I think in the Middle East, I think every country is a little different, granted, but there are certain restrictions about how you can, you know, position a certain business story, etc. And I wanted to be able to produce work that didn't have to fall under those kinds of restrictions. To be fair, I've never personally been interested in writing about politics or of that sort. Mm. But when it comes to business stories, you have to look at statistics. You have to look at proof points. And I knew I'd be a better journalist if I'm producing work for an outlet that was outside of the Middle East. Because to be fair, we also have more evolved 
mm. journalism outside of the Middle East, and I wanted to be to challenge myself as a journalist and produce work for those kind of outlets. Yeah, I think that's a really smart move. Yeah, and it's it's been conscientious because at the same time, look, it's very easy to be like a big fish in a small pond. Yeah, I always refer to Dubai as a small pond. <laughs> I very, love you, Dubai, but it's yeah, lots of big fish in a small pond. It's it's and it's very easy to do that, but I think we're. And I think it depends on how much you want to challenge yourself and what kind of goals you have for yourself. And my goal was always to be um, be able to produce work that could be considered solid in virtually any market. And so to do that, that means I have to look beyond mm. Dubai or beyond the Gulf region, yeah. which means I have to work a lot harder. Yeah. It's a lot more difficult for to sure. get someone abroad to carry your byline or to you know, look at your body of work and say, yes, I'll, I'll carry your story. Yeah, because but there's that a much a bigger pool of journalists of course, for them I'm, to look at. Of course. What does being a journalist mean to you? To me, it's, you know, I've been a truth seeker my whole life, my whole life, whether it means like seeking the truth about who I am, you know, whether it's in my work or in my passions, mm. the questions I want to answer for myself. And I just see journalism as being a way to arrive at that truth. Um, in a story, whether I'm interviewing, I love, I love, love, love doing personal profiles of people mm. because even when it comes to like business leaders, if you speak to them and you kind of get to the kernel of like who they are, like that one thing that stayed the same through every single thing that they've accomplished in their life, for me, that's their truth. And my job as a journalist is to get to that because mm. there's a lot of stuff that you can find out from them if you just Google them. So my thing is, yeah. what is that other thing? Is there something the that... top level stuff that every, we already know that. Exactly. So what is that one thing that shifted them when they were younger? Like, you know, some important change mm. or evolution that happened to them or something that somebody said to them that stuck with them and has always like pushed their buttons whenever they've come to a certain phase, you know, in their career. Yeah. So for me, I think by nature of being a truth seeker, journalism has always been the vehicle for mm. shedding light on the truth throughout history throughout history, look about any news story that's broken, yeah. that's changed um, the way we look at things, whether it's the way we look at people, like I always like to use the example of any expose of um, a leader, whether it's, of course, now everybody loves to bash Trump with <laughs> all the things that we find out about Trump. But this is not a political podcast, so yeah. we won't But the most famous <laughs> example is Nixon, right? I mean, the, Wal the uh, Washington Post broke that story, mm. you know, when they found out about, about Nixon. Um, two years ago, the story in the New York Times that kick-started the whole Me Too movement, that was the work of a journalist. So I always say that I think journalism has that power to shed light mm. on the truth and I think also affect uh, a sea change in society. It's also... I mean, yeah, with the Me Too movement, things are still being uncovered now. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is very much an ongoing mm -hmm. shift. Yeah. Um, Look at the Jeffrey Epstein saga. You know what happened there. I watched a documentary last night mm -hmm. about this, a Channel 4 documentary. And I'd, I'd kind of seen a few articles on Daily Mail. Um, and I watched this documentary and I was blown away. It's so dark. And... Yeah, that I think there's a lot more truth to be uncovered there as well. For sure, but I don't know how whether it will happen or not. I don't he know. Committed suicide, but yes, I mean, remains to be seen. But that's why I think that that's the power of journalism. That's yeah. why there are. Think about how many journalists are under duress around the world. Mm. 
Yeah. Are, is, can, is a journalist considered so threatening in some parts of the world that they're placed under duress? Yeah. And that's probably because stories are considered powerful. Well, they are. And I think that it, it always amazes me how some people get an easier time in the press than others. Okay. And it's almost like this game. So obviously we live in this like celebrity obsessed culture and it seems like some people manage it so well and obviously they have teams of PR and publicists but then there's other people that just seem to get absolutely battered all the time Mm -hmm. and then on the flip side there's people that can just completely turn around a bad a bad story into something actually you know sort of the making of them or something really positive yes, and, I think it's and getting, it's like there's a game there it's getting easier to do that by the way it's getting course, easier for us to forget they all have, have their own last, platforms well there's that but it's also our attention span is getting shorter so i'll give you an example maybe two months ago two and a half months ago at BeautyCon in los angeles um priyanka chopra came under a lot of heat because she had um, was accused of sh- like you know gaslighting this Pakistani American woman in the audience who had asked her a question about how can she consider herself mm. a UNICEF goodwill ambassador while tweeting a patriotic statement um, about India and for about a week to ten days that just blew up the internet and social media and but two weeks later like people it's forgot forgotten. we'd moved on to something else and I think that can be a good thing and a bad thing. Of course, when you're in the middle of like a, a, a you know, a, a, a storm, maybe you just think, you know what, I'll just wait it out. People will yeah. forget and they'll move on to the next story. Um, but on the flip they side, do. on the flip side, if you've produced something really good mm. and amazing, it's not enough to just have that one story and you know rest on your laurels and think, oh my god, I, yeah. I just got covered for doing this. It's not enough. It, people have attention span is so much shorter today that you are going to have to constantly keep putting out stuff that's really good so yeah. people remember you and you stick. Yeah, it's so true. There's a lot more work involved to keep people's attention, especially on really important stories that, you know, like me too, take that as an example. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched that documentary. I can't remember the name of the journalist, but it was like one of the first documentaries and it was the journalist that first uncovered... I think it was his PA, okay, Harvey's PA, and that just that just got people's attention because it was, it was like, oh my god, this has been happening mm-hmm. this whole time, and these are actual women that this is happening to, yes, and the detail and and how graphic and and yeah, it's just continued. It's like this huge wave. It's a huge and, movement. And that journalist. The good thing is, I mean, obviously, you know, we always look at the time a story breaks, but he'd been working on that story for at least a year or two before that and trying to get his sources, which were a number of actresses, comfortable and ready to actually come out in public. So I think it was a a happy, I think, chemistry Mm. that's that's just led to that, you know, just catalyzed that story to happen at that moment. I think if... If he, he would come out with that piece, but the actresses had not stepped up. Yeah, at no, the same you need time. the. Yeah, you it need the. It just all the, came together, but again, they trusted that person as a journalist. They trusted being able to give yeah. you know him as their story. So yeah, you need those creditable. Yeah. Um, I don't want to call them witnesses, but yeah, you need those those people that people kind of respect 
question yes. and are going to believe. Yeah. And I, I love, I love. And it's so weird how we believe certain people. Like, yes. Oh, well, sure. we definitely believe her because she's an Oscar winning actress. But mm. if it was just some nobody, like, it's very strange how we're. Because I think we are living in a world, to be fair, where there are a lot of people who will use anything to be famous. True. Yeah. So we think if someone's already famous, they're not looking to gain an incremental amount of fame. Yeah. Right? But if someone's in theory a nobody, they stand True. to suddenly be in the limelight. Yeah. So I can see where people have those hesitations. And there's a lot of money that can be earned from of course, coming forward. To sell their stories. But journalism is, is really an exciting, exciting, it's an exciting time to be a journalist today. Mm. I think it's very different from, say, 20 years ago. Even oh. 10 years ago, it's just changed so much. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm just kind of excited to be a part of that and to you know obviously pivot and experiment with new ways of telling stories and i'm excited to watch you on that journey as well um i know you're passionate about exploring how asia is shaping the future of business tech and culture and you're a huge advocate for diversity in business could you tell me a bit about how this passion is connected with the work that you do so it's interesting that passion has actually defined the work that i do it was a again process of much like you know if you're going to create a startup right you have this germ of an idea and you want to go and validate it as you keep building what you believe the market needs because you can't create something a silo you just can't create something theoretically in your head and keep building and building at it and then suddenly go out in the market and say hey this is what i have so my passion for Asia specifically, um, I arrived at it over a process. Mm. So when I transitioned out of the corporate world and I'd worked in-house at a startup for a little over a year, um, working specifically on their communications and on taking this, this homegrown story into a global markets. And I just realized that I knew that there's a lot of things that I want to do work-wise and it wasn't enough for me to just had a, to had just had comms at a startup for me. It just wasn't enough yeah. anymore. And it wouldn't satisfy me enough to do the same thing at a different startup in some other part of the world. So I thought, okay, there, there are these things that I know I'm really good at. How do I bring all of that together? What I say are my natural gifts. How do I bring my yeah. natural gifts and abilities together into a way that's impactful and creates value for the world? So that was a process and my, I want to thank one of my friends actually kind of kickstarted me on that journey because she's the one who said, you're really good at writing and didn't you say you wanted to be a journalist? So <laughs> why don't you start writing about, you know, the startups and, and, and things that are you know, happening here. And this is when the ecosystem was really young. I'm talking about like 2012, 2013, mm. pre-Kareem. And um, that's how it kind of, I went on that journey of, I think, understanding what it is that I want to write about. What are the questions I want to answer? So originally my focus was the Middle East at the time. Um, I told myself, I see myself being like, you know, a journalist and a writer focusing on business and technology in the Middle East. And then I just felt that it wasn't enough. It just did not feel like challenging enough. I wanted to be able to write stories about bigger deals being broken. Mm. I wanted to be able to write about deep tech, you know, and it was really difficult, I think, to find that kind of meat for me in the stories I was producing. I was lucky that I got to work with some amazing outlets um, in those first two years. I wrote for Wanda, I wrote for Inc. Arabia, and they've given me 
some really good assignments you know to work on i'm really proud of of the pieces that we produced and i think along the way i realized that here in the middle east we're a little too i think obsessed with what's happening in silicon valley and with you know um replicating that in this part mm-hmm. of the world and where the fact is you know, I think every ecosystem has its own unique charm and its own strengths and why not create something from the ground up you know organically and to that when I started thinking about this if you just look like a couple of hours either way you're suddenly like hey we're really close to like India and China two of the largest economies, uh, not just in Asia, but in the mm. world. And, you know, look at their ecosystems. After the U.S., I think China and India produced yeah. the most number of unicorns in the world. And they didn't do that by recreating Silicon Valley in their countries. Mm. They did that very organically. Of course, there are a number of other reasons that allow that, you know, kind of to manifest. And so for me, I thought, well, that's the kind of stuff that I need to start thinking about is like, you know, what is happening in these ecosystems that's allowed them to reach this stage mm-hmm. of growth, um, this level of funding, the kind of checks that are being written there. Yeah. I'm never able to write a story about that here. So if I'm going to challenge myself, I have to go after those kind mm-hmm. of, you know, bigger stories and complex beats. And that's when I think my focus became looking at Asia overall and also realizing that as somebody of Asian origin, who has spent a considerable amount of time in this part of the world, I wanted to bring that perspective mm. to those stories versus being someone who either just, you know, flies into a city and has, you know, no necessarily no bearings there, but yeah. just covers something and then flies out. No like, real connection exactly. to the place. So yeah. I think it was from that kind of thrust that I decided to go about and I made Asia overall my focus. And I think as a byproduct of that, I realized that in the global business narrative, um, we often see Asian business leaders underrepresented, mm. I think. I think besides Jack Ma, mm-hmm. how many other, you know, serious Asian heavyweights do yeah. you know of whose names roll off the tongue? And I think that yeah, also became true. another thing. I was like, you know what, their stories are out there and it's going to be my job to start mm. finding them and writing about them. So it's kind of, that's kind of like how I arrived at that. It's but it was almost sounds like that's a bit of a calling for you. You feel like that's something, like you're very drawn to that. It is. It has become that. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, I always say, like, when you feel that you're drawn to something or when you have this chrysalis of an idea in your mind, um, do a lot of listening. I think look for what's happening around you to kind of come back to you and say, yes, that's the kind of, path that you Mm. need to follow and I remember this so this was a germ of like a thesis if I want to say like this is my ethos Mm. as a person as a journalist my ethos is I believe in the Asia success story I want to showcase that I think the first time I actually put that publicly was when I did my first ever talk really which was in Hong Kong which was ironic because when the first time there nobody there knows me and it was just on a whim I was like let me just do it if nobody shows up nobody will have to know because yeah. nobody knows me. There's nothing the to lose. No one knows me. And I think that's where I put that ethos up there. And I, you know, I kind of looked at the audience and they were like, yeah, that makes sense. You're right. Like, you know, there have to be other people mm. beyond, besides Jack Ma that the world needs to also know about. Mm. So that's when I think doing a lot of that kind of listening and getting that feedback was kind of made me feel like, okay, this is the journey I want to go on. And I think when people look to you and 
believe in your credibility mm. that made me realize okay people trust me to be able to tell that story as well it must be so comforting to feel like you're on the right path to feel like i'm going in the right direction this is my purpose not only is it my purpose but it's doing good does that give you a sense of sort of stability um it gives me a certain kind of inner peace Mm. i want to say because i think everybody comes into the world to be able to produce something and impact the world in a certain way and your ability to, to produce impact changes over the course of your lifetime depending on how best you're using the, you know, the opportunities that come your way to grow as a person, as a mm. professional. So yes, I do feel that kind of inner peace that this is a direction I'm going to go on. But I'm perfectly aware that as we evolve as people, my direction may also change. It of course, may expand, yeah. It may shift. And that's okay too. But it's a mix of peace and also just passion. And mm. I think this kind of fervent dedication that yeah when when i tell talk to people about my work sometimes like it just makes me so excited when i think about the kinds of stories i want to tell that i'm i'm delighted to feel that level of excitement because i have been in situations at some points in my corporate career where i definitely did not have that level of excitement about my work at all and when i look back i think gosh why did i let those two three years of mine just you know, just mm. slip by where in theory I was atrophying as a person, as a professional. I was definitely, if not plateauing, I was definitely entering atrophy. And yeah. so when I think back now, I'm like, gosh, I, I would never want to get to that, that position again. So I feel very grateful, yes, to have come here. But but you've done the work as well. I did the work, you know, it's not like, like you somebody, figured it out. It's not like somebody came to me and said, you can do this. Yeah. This is exactly the path for you. No, I had to figure it out on my own. Like I had to be the one tilling the soil yeah putting you know paving it with stones figuring out the direction nobody's going to do that for you here because when i looked around me in this part of the world Mm. i couldn't find somebody who had taken that direction yeah post a post a corporate career i couldn't find somebody who was not just going to be this or this because i knew again like i said i wanted to be very intersectional in my work so i realized wow okay i can use journalism in a very different way you know writing stories as a journalist is one part of my work but there are these other ways that journalism can be meaningful as well. And so that was a process of my own discovery. And I, I want to say it's like- And ongoing as and well. And it's ongoing. Yeah. It's completely, yeah, totally. It's a, it's a work in progress every day. Who have been some of your biggest inspirations uh, throughout your life so far? And how have they impacted the decisions you've made? Okay. Well, I think my childhood inspiration, who I recently posted about, was- um, Christian Amanpour. Like, I can't remember when I was young, she would have been the only one when I first started seeing her, you know, covering the Gulf War. I remember I was living in Dubai at the time. And it was very rare to see, you know, a woman who looked like her covering, you know, international news. And she's out in, like, you know, um, in the battlefields, literally. Mm. And that was when, that was also the time when I loved writing. I was discovering myself as a writer when I was really young. And putting two and two together, I thought, okay, I could do this. You know, I could be a, a journalist. And she featured in all my college essays, all my application essays. I still have those. But where I talk about her and what she represented for me. Um, but I think later on, 
I want to say more recently, especially in the searching phase of mine about three or four years ago, I have absolutely loved um, journalists like Liz Plank, who goes by the handle Feminist Stabulous on Instagram, who is amazing. We'll and include her in the show notes. <laughs> you should. <laughs> so people can um, check her out. She just came out with a book called For the Love of Men. And um, I love That's that. Great title. She's been this obviously you know, through and through feminist. What I love is not just her point of view, but the way in which she's using journalism, right? Because she's using it to actually tell stories from the community and take those. She's turned it into this book now where she's literally done almost a state of manhood in the world today. Mm. Like what's crippling men? Because we've done so much work on women and the direction they I know, now men are like, uh, do I open a door for you? Do I not? (laughs) What's my place? She talks about, you know, how men um, deal with grief, like how much the way they grow up affects the way like they emote. And it's amazing. I mean, she, and that's using her skills as a journalist to synthesize reams of information to be able to look at mega trends, connect the dots, mm. and come up with a thesis and write a book that supports that thesis. So I absolutely, she's a huge you know, inspiration to me. And I wanna say also um, Malcolm Gladwell, whom I had the pleasure of interviewing when he was here about two years ago in Dubai. And again, you know, he was a journalist at, at the New York Times, but uh, when I was living in DC, that was when I first read his book, Blink, and I was fascinated by it because at his way of just connecting the dots and giving us such a simple way of mm-hmm. understanding how human beings make you know, decisions subconsciously. And I loved it. And he's, again, also a journalist. So for me, it's role models like them um, that have always inspired me to pursue journalism, to become mm-hmm. a better journalist, but to use that craft, I think, in compelling ways that people can benefit from in their everyday lives. Do you see yourself writing a book? Definitely. One day. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I sense that. I have a couple of ideas. I have a couple of ideas. It's a matter of, I think, zeroing in on the one. Yeah. And I think part of it is also, again, listening. Like, mm. I've been a big listener. I listen to trends. I understand what's shifting and what's changing. You can look at something happening. For example, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about climate change. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> you've been talking about it. I remember being in college and going to some movie. It was a movie that Al Gore was in or he'd come out with, and I'm totally blanking out on the name, but this is when he'd lost the election at Mm. the time. And then he totally devoted himself to environmental work. And then there was this film that had come out. And I remember in in school, we'd all gone to see it. And we've known about climate change for a really long time, but why does it feel like such a hot button issue now? Mm. You know, and that's a shift. It's a shift, like even in Diwali Why now, do you think that is? Well, I think it's, it's a mix of a number of things. I think it's when you, if you look at anything from, let's look at climate, we'll look at investing. Some mm-hmm. people are talking about like not just investing the regular way, but let's invest in companies that have, that actually think about the environmental and social good yeah. that they produce. It's called ESG investing. It's a specific class of investing that has existed for decades but it's only now coming into prominence because, hello, business people realize, oh, it's probably not a good thing for our business or our brand or our shareholders if we pollute the environment. That's going to affect (laughs) our stock price anyway. But it's a process. And I think when you have, anytime you have a major generational shift or when a specific class of society is now in a position where they hold a certain amount of consumption Mm. power, things start to change. So uh, I did a piece recently about why we're suddenly seeing, of course, ESG investing growing in prominence and why we're now seeing a role like the chief sustainability officer as a legit 
role within the C-suite. And different people that I spoke to all attributed it to the fact that we're now seeing, you know, millennials exercising that mm. as a requirement. That's what they expect now. They're expecting yeah. clean and, you know, they want to consume things in a clean, ethical way. They care about where things are sourced from. They expect leaders of large businesses to be responsible and transparent. So I think when you see those things kind of coming together is when you start to see a shift. I mean, I've noticed it in the past sort of couple of years because I watch a lot of uh, TV from back home, back in the UK. And it's sort of, there's sort of like three main topics that they're always talking about. Climate change, uh, becoming vegan, and... Um, well, I don't want to say the B word, Brexit. Um, that's more recently. And and also the, the Me Too movement. And it just seems like there's this huge shift. And when I was growing up, we were never made aware of, like, you know, my parents recycled, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't a thing. Right. I don't remember companies talking about being sustainable, like right? uh, environmentally friendly. Like, I don't remember that sort of like, that that dialogue going on uh-huh. whereas now it's it's constant right and i just sometimes wonder there's obviously a lot of people out there that have amazing intentions and are doing a lot of good but i feel like a lot of people just jump on the bandwagon of course you're always gonna find that yeah that's just, just how the world is and it almost is like a like a like a kind of trend as mm. well especially with veganism it's like yeah, you know, let's. There's so many vegan restaurants. I think it's amazing for vegans, but it does seem quite like a bit of a fad a trend. Contrived. A little bit, yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, and I, I don't want to offend any vegans listening, but it does sometimes feel right like a like a bit of a, a yeah a kind of trend. Um, it's a well, the definition of a trend obviously is something that is you know is compelling in in contemporary time, mm. right? everybody's talking about it it seems popular so it for sure is a trend um but it's also a necessity of the time that we live in too yeah so there are some people who've always believed it was a necessity there are some who are now waking up to the fact there are just yeah. some who see it now as a trend and realize if they want to be relevant then i need to be able to bring some of that trend into the work that i do and i suppose it doesn't really matter the reasons you're doing it if the outcome is for the greater good does it really matter? But I do find it interesting that there seems to be these sort of like hot topics that everyone... Correct. Like like all of a sudden, everybody was talking about diversity and inclusion. Like everybody. And I was like, do you... Like, yeah. Did you just... Or, or <laughs> correction, everybody wanted to call themselves a futurist. Everybody. Mm. I'm just like, what do you... Have you like studied technology or have you ever like worked in technology or have you had that kind of exposure at all or is it just a sexy word to attach you're always going to find yeah as well is it just the like the latest buzzword keeps it exciting but i think think that's that's when it comes to us as consumers of someone's content or you know their ideas to do to also look scratch beyond behind you know beyond the surface as well mm. to look like i tell a lot of people that um you can it's one thing to be considered an expert but it's one, another to call yourself one most people who are thought leaders and experts never really call themselves yeah. that 
they're just automatically considered that because they have a body of work that reflects mm. that or their level of thinking is so sophisticated no, they don't need to i'm not sure they don't need yeah to. so i always say that i think look look for that you know that's where oftentimes real experts don't shout from the rooftops that they're yeah experts. they just automatically have done the work and people consider them an expert. Yeah, something. so true. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced during your journalistic career so far? Well, my journalistic career is very young. So I've only been, I want to say, a bonafide journalist for maybe about five years now. That's a fair amount of time, though. It is, it is. But I, th- I still feel as young because I feel like every year I'm suddenly like, going in a different direction mm. or being challenged with like a different kind of a story. So I feel like, wow, like this is different. This is a stretch. I think, it, I think in the beginning, I think, I think the challenge was figuring out um, what did I want to focus, what did I want to make my beat about? Like, you know, what do I want, do I want to be a, gen- a journalist who writes about, you know, everything in business or do I want to mm. have that kind of focus? And I think very quickly I realized having had business experience, I loved writing about business and technology you know I didn't I very briefly thought should I start writing about food and about lifestyle but it didn't really gel with me because those are just not things that I keep too much you know in the loop about yeah they don't set your soul on fire there's nothing that I I can consume much anyway so let me write about stuff that you know really I geek out on Mm. and I think I think one of the challenges and this continues to be a challenge okay but the only reason it the only reason it is challenging is because you're always looking to grow. Mm. I think when you're always at the periphery of your abilities is when you grow and you, you will feel the challenge because you are stretching yourself. Yeah. And I like to stay in that zone. I think it's always being able to write for publications that, you know, are difficult to get bylines in. I think that's always going to be a stretch for and me. How did you, how did you get your first byline because there'll be people listening that are passionate about writing they want to become you know a professional journalist but where do you begin if you don't already have connections in that world how did you find your first whether it's paid or not but your first sort of published piece of work so i think today whether you want to be a journalist or not i think content we know is important Mm. Good content is even more important. Just posting something for the sake of posting it is really not enough. I don't think it does you any credit if you've really not given too much thought into fleshing out an actual point of view. It's a lot like those LinkedIn posts where you just share something, but you don't really tell me what you're sharing or why it resonated with you in any it's know, any it's almost like i just need to get content out it's like a lazy so whatsapp just... it's like a lazy whatsapp forward you know what yeah. i mean like i can forgive that for my friends but maybe on my linkedin feed can you please put a little bit of thought into yeah. why this is a, why this was interesting even remotely so true. Um, so i think for anybody today whether you want to be a journalist or you want to have be able to showcase your expertise in your specific field being able to communicate those thoughts in a written piece, mm. I think, is always going to be important. Yes, you can um, think about, you know, how do I come across on video or how do I come across on audio? But at the end of the day, I think, you know, written material is always going to stand the test of time. Um, so being able to, I think, for the first thing, so I'm going to break this down. I think the first thing when it comes to getting your foot in the door is to think about it 
don't just get super excited about what you're writing about. Think about the reader. What do they want mm. answered for them? And approach an editor of a publication. Do the work. Go on their website. Find out you know, who's the editor there. Look them up on LinkedIn. Use LinkedIn. It's your friend. Mm. Go there. Reach out to them. Say, hey, you know, I'm really interested in writing for this publication. What are your contributor guidelines? That's the first thing you ask for. Mm. They'll often tell you what kind of pieces they like to accept, what the word count is, what they're looking for. Most established publications have something like contributor guidelines in place. Mm. If they don't, the editor will tell you this is what we look for. But do that because it helps you create a pitch that has a better chance of being accepted. And what if you, because they will then tend to ask for your portfolio of work, or examples of your work what if you are starting from scratch what would your advice be just to write anyway so to so write you on your own do, blog so what you can do is if you have for example sometimes you can just write the first one or two paragraphs of the story as you see it and that's a good sample to send somebody if you don't have any examples previous of work kind of writing another idea write some posts on linkedin an actual article because LinkedIn lets you create articles, mm. write articles on LinkedIn. Those are great examples that you can share with yeah. editors of publications because a really good LinkedIn article often reads like a pretty well-written, like, you know, news feature kind of a piece. Yeah. So those and are what great. better way to show your style? And while you're at it, you're also getting feedback from your audience mm. on LinkedIn, right? They're getting to see your, your piece. You're getting to see what people comment on, etc. And now LinkedIn has this feature. So when I was in Singapore earlier this month for the Digital Journalism Summit, we had the LinkedIn, the editor of LinkedIn India talk about how LinkedIn now has brought journalists on board within the company. Mm -hmm. And LinkedIn is going to be producing a lot of its own content. Amazing. And also um, showcasing content of its users. So if you've noticed for the last month, you'll sometimes see at the top of your feed, this person's post is trending with this hashtag. Mm -hmm. It's, it's because of this new direction that LinkedIn is going on, wanting to be, I think, the, the gateway for business yeah. content. And that's, a, I think, a great chance to give that a shot. I yeah, think. that's a really good tip. Come up with a, a couple of LinkedIn posts if you don't have the time for that, but I highly recommend you do that just because you kind of work that writing muscle. Reach out to editors, tell them, give them a sample headline. What would the headline for this article be? What are the three main key takeaways for mm. your audience? Put that into a pitch. A pitch does not need to be three paragraphs. It just needs to be, hi, this is who I am. Take Yeah, because often editors don't have time yeah, either. Yeah, just give so them keep a link it. to your LinkedIn profile so they can just go there and see like what you're about and what you work about. And then say, I'm really interested in being able to write about this for your publication. You know, this is what I have in mind. Give them... Give them two or three topics, I say. So if they don't take one, they may take mm. another because you yeah, never know what they're looking for yeah. at that point in time. No, that's amazing advice. Thank you. So Natasha, for any of our listeners who may be in a similar situation to me at the moment where they might be finding themselves at a little bit of a crossroads in their career, um, maybe they're going through a transitional period, what would your advice be? Okay, so you're at a crossroads. Mm. Can I ask, what are you considering? Um, what do you feel you're not doing enough of right now? It's not so much what I'm not doing enough of. I just feel like I'm very much at this crossroads of I've been doing 
something for the past four or five years and I feel like that chapter is coming to an end okay but I don't know what the new chapter looks like okay and I want to I mean we all want to make the right decision but I I feel like I have decisions to make but I also Mm. don't want to rush those decisions because I'm very impulsive and I don't like kind of not knowing where I'm going so Mm. my natural instinct is to just like try and fix it and and rush when actually I need to just get some clarity okay but that's also difficult when you you need you know we all need basic things right of you course, know yeah we need we to need pay our bills living, like, we need to pay yeah, our bills but of course. you know it's and I and I think a lot of people are feeling that, that way at the moment as mm. well um see so yeah, I'm interested to know what would be your sort of yeah, what would be I'm your gonna, take I'm, on that? So I'm going to pull from, I think, specific phases where I felt that I was at, like, a crossroads. So I remember, I think this is around 2010, 2011, when I was working at Dubai Holding at the time, one of the entities under Dubai Holding, but where I'd been able to, you know, uh, work. I was working at the CEO's office at the time and very used to seeing that having this eagle eye view of a business and realizing I really need to get, you know, hands on and work on a specific project, on restructuring it, on, you know, turning things around because I wanted to have that kind of hands on experience. Um, But I didn't really know where within this large company I would get that kind of opportunity. So I think. Part of it is, and that was also a time when the, we were still like lurching forward from mm-hmm. the global financial crisis. You know, so it was a very different kind of a time. Um, but I remember being hungry to do more and realizing that I can't stay as comfortable as it is working in the office of the CEO. That I had to do more. I had to develop myself, and that means you know stretching my boundaries. I think. Talk to people around you who you trust. I remember having a conversation with the CEO saying, this is where I'm at. Like, you know, I've been able to do this and this and this, but I really want to see like how the things we discuss in an XCOM, like how does that get translated on Mm. the ground with an actual business? That's what I want to be a part of. That's what I want to do. And I was somebody who didn't have an MBA who has not really worked in a multinational, um, not strictly somebody from the real estate world. So I knew that anybody with a limited point of view would have used those against me. Yeah. But I was lucky that I was the person who ended up creating a role for me on their team was someone who saw, again, my innate potential. Mm. That she's a doer, she's a problem solver, she's really good at synthesizing information. So this is the person that I want to have you know, on my team. So that's one stage. The other is realizing that when I'd realized that I was kind of done with that entire corporate Mm. life, not really seeing anything else in Dubai or in the UAE that was that exciting or different or that would stretch my boundaries. Also realizing that at that point, I think in the market, if you've, uh, in my experience anyway, if you've worked in semi-government for too long, mm. you tend to kind of grandfather into it. And then it's difficult for people to see how you can be relevant to a new industry. So that was a challenge, I think. Realizing that that tends to be a stereotype. People have this preconceived notion about 
can you deliver you yeah. know, if I if I bring you on board uh, within an agency whether it's a consulting agency or a PR agency like how might you be you know fit mm. and um, I think the first thing to do is just get out of your mind honestly like I think sometimes our biggest doubter we can be our biggest like enemy in that sense when we doubt ourselves and it was very easy in that situation that there will be people who will con- look at me that way and perceive me that way and tell me what their reservations are and that's fine like you know they're not the only people you know in the market there's always going to be somebody that you know things kind of click with and I think the difference for me was having a lot of conversations at that point in time so if you are at a crossroads but you don't know what your next path is mm-hmm. which is where I was I was done with corporate but I was like do I want to work for like an entrepreneurship enabler or do I want to work for a PR agency or do I want to work in CSR like what do I want to do yeah. And I'd made my list of like the 10 different things that I could do. And, you know, literally gone about having conversations with everybody, informational interviews with everybody Mm. within those spaces. And you're going to find people that you would think are a complete waste of time having spoken to. But hey, there's something that you can learn from each other. You can always take something away. There's always something you can take away. Or it's just life just directing you somewhere else. And I think, one, it helped me understand myself better. It helped me realize as much as I maybe like this, the way this is practiced in this market will not be challenging enough mm. or it's really limited or it's not going to be able to take me where I see myself going in my career. So all those conversations will just shed light and help you, I think, figure out and narrow things down. But something else I also urge people to do always, I'm a big believer in mirroring, mm. in kind of seeing um people that you resonate with, like what they've done with their careers, anybody who's on a major transition or shift. And I think that's how I came to this position because, or how I crafted, I think, this space where I can mm-hmm. say, I'm a journalist and a strategist and a speaker focused on the Asia success story. Um, and on, I think how, and on answering questions about the future of you know, work and human potential. So I think it was looking at people who, were journalists mm-hmm. or who came from the business world but they did something completely different or they took that and went in a different direction and those were not people i'm going to see in the middle east i yeah. wasn't finding anybody like that no i could either tell myself it's not going to happen there's nobody in the middle east who has done something different like you know with their with their journalism career or but i decided to look beyond that so that means google is your friend start finding mm. out who's doing like you know incredible work who's taken a completely different you know who's gone done something lateral in their career and just changed things around and that's where i started finding people like liz plank that i mentioned before yeah. or there's any i mean there's, there's jessica naziri i think who's who's really interesting because she was a correspondent for the la times covering technology but she's taken that background now and works independently mm. where she focuses on talking about technology for women predominantly for women because she says there doesn't isn't enough tech content that's uh, approachable yeah, for women so i think look for those examples and you can start to figure out that's a strategy they use to get there pivot you know use use that mm. as a chance for you to pivot and try something you know on your own and i've reached out to many of them and had conversations to get perspective to like kind of get advice see and i'm always I'm always very eager to connect with people and reach out. But for some reason at the moment, I'm just holding myself back a little bit. And this podcast, I'll use it as as an example. When I started to think about Life School as a podcast, I reached out to other 
podcasters. I took people for coffee. I picked people's brains. I went to workshops. And it got to the point where I actually overwhelmed myself with information. Okay. So you're overthinking it. Yeah. Mm. Like I, I was really overthinking it. And a lot of the people I met you can take something away obviously from everyone you meet but it was it just wasn't actually helpful Mm. and I ended up I'd almost spoken to too many people got too many opinions got too much information and I just like over overwhelmed myself so at this stage I'm almost hesitant to start going to lots of different people until I think you know that's it okay and I've got something that I can actually go to people rather than just like hey i'm at a bit of a crossroads well i would, you, I would never also, approach somebody saying i was at a bit of a crossroads no, of course not but, yeah, as but in, it's more like you go to them and you say hey listen i noticed yeah. that you were here in your career and then you got here yeah how and, you know, did I'm you kind of make at this that stage. transition so i'm just curious like how did you yeah. figure out this is the direction you want to go in yeah totally know? and sometimes you don't even have to have conversations there are a lot of people if you do enough research on them you yeah. can kind of figure YouTube. out youtube they did this at this point and then yeah. they did this yeah exactly those are also learnings that you can have and i think I'm, I don't think you need to talk to too many as well. I'm more a believer in quality over quantity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I yeah. think you'll figure out people who are actually generous with their time and will actually tell you what you need. Like I, so another, when you talk about um, transitions, I remember mm. when I was working um, in-house at, and at that particular startup, it was around 2016, and I was starting to get invitations to <clears throat> host chair or you know you know moderate Mm -hmm. conferences and at that time I'd already done I think I'd done step conference that year already and I'd done the internet of things summit that summer and I realized hey you know I love this I love being in front of an audience I love using my abilities as a journalist to synthesize important things for the audience and I love just the energy on stage I like being that person who if you have understood the skill of like how do you maintain sustain and lift the energy you know in, in a room yeah and i loved it and um i realized you know i could do this as part of my portfolio of work but how do i make that shift where it's it, it's a it's a viable aspect yeah. in my in my portfolio career if you will and i remember thinking at one point maybe i'll you know i'll go to london and maybe i'll do a course in um how to be a presenter or something like that because i think sometimes we think we need to go and get certified. Yeah, I need a qualification. And it depends. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But I thought maybe I did. And I remember reaching out to this very well-known, is, is very established um, BBC journalist, ex-BBC journalist, Nisha Pillay. She's done a lot of their investigative work. Um, she was the one in the BBC studio the day um, 9-11 happened. Wow. So she has a very compelling story mm. of how she had to figure out that story on the fly because yeah. there's such little information coming to the studio. But I reached out to her because I knew that she does a lot of these kinds of, you know, workshops, etc. And I reached out to her and said, hey, I'm, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm considering, I want to know more about what kind of, you know, courses you offer. And she wrote out to me saying, she's saying, first of all, my courses are going to be really expensive. Second of all, I don't think you need it. I said, let's just get on a call and let's have a conversation. Wow. I was like, Wow, okay. So we she spent an hour and a half with me on Skype. She took me through everything from like how she figured out her transition from the BBC mm. to, you know, how she would make sure um, creating the right approaching ensuring you're getting the right kind of mix of 
conferences and summits in your work like what it takes to be a business presenter like everything down to like she was like this is what you should ideally wear this and this on stage like and this is a woman who facilitates stuff at the un like what an amazing woman audience she spent an hour and a half with me so my point is that she was very kind okay like a lot of and she again like i said she's somebody who she did the, she took some time to look at me and my profile and realize mm-hmm. this girl doesn't need it. She just needs a little bit of advice, you know, on yeah, how she can kind of start approaching this new direction or this new thing to add to mm. her body of work. And that's just, you know, what I, what I took from it. So I think look for a mirroring. Like I, I think those are always instances where I think, okay, this is how this person approached it. Let me also try that. And you have to tweak things along the way because every market is different we're not yeah. we're not in a mature market like the united states or in europe i think where you know things tend to be i think the way certain kinds of business are conducted mm. are more evolved so you have to kind of you have to figure things out a little differently yeah and i think i totally agree with what you're saying and i think that i am just not at that stage yet i admit that you've spoken a lot about listening and i think i'm at that stage right now I just need to be listening and aware of what's going on around yes, me yes. and be still. And then I'll get to that stage. And when it comes to listening, don't limit yourself to where you are. I'm a big believer yeah. in like, the world is so connected. There may be something that you're doing that could be valuable to people in other markets. Where are those other markets? Mm. Figure that out. I am so sort of like blinkered just to think about Dubai. I don't even think about the Middle East. I literally am just like, what can I do in Dubai? Right which is very limiting. Dubai is an amazing city. Like, I'm city. limiting myself. Dubai is an amazing city. Of like course, I, I was we love Dubai. Here. I've seen how it's changed yeah. since the 80s to, even when I, uh, in 2007, yeah. it was so different than it is now. But it's also a city in the world. Yeah. Like, there are other fast-moving uh, cities within this continent, and by continent, I mean Asia. What are they, you know? And what's happening there? And you may be surprised to see that there may be a gap that only you could fill. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, um, it's making me think. Yeah. Think about it. Thank you for that. You're welcome. We're going to do a quick fire round now. Okay. Natasha, are you ready? Should I get like, you know, an armor or a vest (laughs) or something? I mean, it doesn't have to be too quick. Take your time. All right. Um, Favorite quote? Oh, okay. This is the one. And I used to use this. This is kind of geeky, but this is when I was in school and people would put quotes in their email signatures. In matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of substance, stand like a rock. Wow. I, I like think, that. I think, that's, I think it's Thomas Jefferson. I think. I've actually never heard that yeah. one. That's, it's, it's and I'm just like a quote. Years. I just regurgitate quotes yeah. all the time. That's my, that's I my love favorite that. One. And that's just who I am. Yeah, um, I've always been more substance-driven person mm. versus superficial things. Yeah, I so. love that. Um, best piece of life advice you've ever been given? Oof. Um, God, it's heavy, like life advice. I don't know if, if this is strictly life advice, but I want to go back to, you know what I said earlier about like you don't need to study journalism you to mm. study the world and I think what I took from that in life always is that to never look at something in a very limited kind of way yeah like my my biggest belief is that we none of us have we're, we're limitless as people mm. like our potential 
And I think that's something that I've really believed strongly in and I've always used that to pursue opportunities as crazy or radical as, as they yeah. may seem. So I think that's, that's been advice that stuck with me. So it was always, you know, don't limit yourself to one thing, like study the world, like look what's happening around you and, and yeah. just, you know, make the most of it. Favorite tool or app for helping organize your life? Mm. I'm not a big app person, to be honest. Like I keep it really simple. I love um, just my calendar <laughs> in general. Just I've been pretty conscious about just making sure that whatever I'm setting up is you know in my calendar and just sticking to it. That's what I use look at to keep me kind of organized. Most of my guests have said the same thing yeah. so far this season. Just um, their calendar, their phone, a that, diary. Yeah, my calendar and uh, making sure it syncs because that has happened where you have something on your phone yeah, then calendar you can but it's it. not in your yeah. app. But I'm not a big like using other apps to stay organized because I think like... I think being organized is a fundamental trait. There are things that can help you be organized, but I think just keeping it simple. Mm. Like I just calendar is, is is all I need. And sometimes I block time on my calendar if I'm not I don't have like meetings or appointments, but using that to block this is when I do this. this yeah, is my I do the same. This and stuff yeah. Like that. yeah. Biggest pet peeve when it comes to business. Mm. Um gosh, I've encountered quite a few pet pet peeves I think um, when I was in my corporate avatar I remember being I mean I was easily the youngest person in the room oftentimes when you I would go to meetings with some of the big banks like you know in the region together with my boss at the time maybe one or two other people but I think people often assume if you're young and if you're female you're like the note taker or you're there to be like somebody's secretary. And mm. I luckily I'm, I was working with somebody who did not see me that way at all. I mean, he is, a, you know, a, a CEO, but he's taking his own notes. I take my own notes and then we trade thoughts. So that'd be my, yeah. my biggest pet peeve was people who just assumed that because you're female and you're young, then you probably are like, you know, mm. the secretary or something like that. Yeah, and I think that's Until you open your mouth and then they realize, oh, we're mistaken. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, you are mistaken. I'm actually smarter than all of you put together. <laughs> um, most important life lessons so far? Oh, take chances. Take chances. I think that's something I've learned myself. I've taken chances on myself. I have been lucky that people have taken chances on me. And um, it's something I've always taken, even from my parents, because they took a big chance coming here in the early 70s mm. when it was desert, yeah. essentially, right? But they took a chance because they knew that there was the opportunity to build like a better life in the long term um, and to be in a, in a place where they could, I think, perhaps more easily access opportunity yeah. than they could if they had stayed in India at that, that point in time. And they've taken chances. I mean, uh, my father is an entrepreneur to this day and he, when you're an entrepreneur, you take chances. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I've always learned is taking chances. If you could give your 18 year old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh God. One? You want to give one? Wow. I was... You can have two. <laughs> I want to say, since this is a business and career podcast, 
Um, I want to say it's more um, your career will figure itself out. I think at that age, like when I was 18, I remember wanting to do like everything, like signing up for all these different student clubs mm. and thinking, oh, okay, I'm not going to major in journalism now, but what should my like, you know, next major actually be? And I think sometimes you weigh down with this o- overthinking. And Forget what? 18. I feel it now. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of, now I'm now more like I listen. Yeah. I've always, so I've always been an intuitive person. And there have been times when I've strayed from intuition. Mm. And I think just then you realize you probably shouldn't have. So I've realized I'm naturally a person that goes with my gut. So just go with it. It's what's served you well so far. So just continue to go with it. I think at 18, definitely um, really like I think obsessing, feeling like I want to do all these, all these things. And it, it, in part is because I was also at a school where everybody's like a super achiever. You know, like yeah. everybody is someone goes and spends their summer like studying malaria somewhere in Africa and then so you always want to keep up right yeah. and then you think okay but it, it it taught me to be competitive for sure in a good way because we're mm. in a school where you're you and your friends are competing for the same things but you're not letting it affect your friendship but I definitely was always sometimes always setting like you know standards for myself and sometimes you think well which way should I go like will I get a really good internship and yeah yeah I think but it actually figures itself out. it just out. figured itself out yeah it totally figured itself out okay last question Natasha what do you know for sure what do I know for sure I know for sure that hard work always pays um, eventually it always pays mm. it's just I think uh, natural law I think when you work on something with dedication and devotion and with this kind of purity for your craft and you have this pure intention and you put that out into the world like day in and day out you will it it will essentially be rewarded at some point in time that's what i believe in it's what i love that forward i mean this that's what we love anybody even when people talk about manifesting and things like that right if there's a science behind it like that's just the natural law of attraction so if i believe that i am a really good journalist for example i still think i'm a work in progress but let's say i think i'm this amazing you know, journalist and i really want to write the story and i i don't want bylines and like this 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 like and i keep whatever i do every day i just do it to the best of my ability you know, and that's what I believe in. Like I've started already mm. doing that in my work that eventually that's going to come to me. Yeah. That's just how, it, that's just how, how I, I was. I have, you know, kid you not, I have once um, consistently reached out to, and this is how small the world is. There was, uh, there was a publication in New York I really wanted to write for because they cater to investors and I wanted to be able to produce news that is compelling for investors. And I remember speaking to an editor, say, last summer, not this past summer, the summer of 2018, having a great conversation with her. She was like ex-Al Jazeera, and she spent like an hour on the phone. We talked about like the kind of stories I could produce, amazing, and then following up with her over the course of two, three months. And she'd apparently left Mm. the network and then thinking, gosh, like it would have been amazing to like work with her. Like I would have learned so much. And then... At some point, I must have put that into the world that I wanted to write there. Because as the rest of the year continued, I was writing other stories. Mm. 
stories that challenged me, like, you know, as a journalist, um, I got the chance to produce two pieces with Julia Gillard, the former Australian mm. Prime Minister, as a guest editor. And Amazing. that just, it just happened. I didn't go looking for it. It just came my way. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And then one summer, I just happened to be looking at my inbox, happened to see a newsletter from this particular network that they put out. And, and I rarely read their newsletters after she'd left, but I just happened to look at that. And I happened to see that they have a new managing editor who I'd met in Dubai because she was doing something else in Dubai like a year ago. And I was like, wait, you just moved to New York and you're working for them. How is this possible? So that's just how the world works. And then that was my you know, way to start writing for them, even though the former editor left. But that's something that I pursued like at some mm. level for like nine months. So yeah. Hard work always pays. I love that. And I definitely, uh, I needed to hear that today as well. I think one of the things I love most about this podcast is it's, for me, it's almost like free, free therapy. You know, I sit in here. Free, I'm going to give you a bill. And I get to, uh, do you take post-dated checks? Uh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll come up, we'll come up with a payment plan. And I get to sit here and talk to these amazing women. And, and I will be interviewing men in my next season. I'm not just going to keep it to women only, but for this season it is. And I, I'm just like soaking it up. And it's funny because I'm always, you know day-to-day you know you have you're in a different mood every day you know I may have come from another meeting or something may have happened the day before and it's funny because I always feel like I always hear something that I needed to hear Mm. on that particular day in that particular episode um so yeah thank you so much for everything you shared thank you for giving me a chance to reflect as well I mean this is also a chance for me to kind of sometimes just sit back and think hey that's what I learned from yeah. that you know sometimes we also forget to crystallize lessons in that kind of well it's way, not often you know? that you actually get to sit and take stock yes of what you've true. done you're just like on to the next thing yes so i love giving people a chance to also tell their story um and i think we've only just you know sort of um you know there's a lot more to talk about i think um and i'd love to have you back on the show again i'd love and i'd love for um, listeners if they have if they want to have me expand on anything in particular they can definitely you know they can dm you we can do and an definitely another like you know an ex- extended version of and Q&A of course i will put all your details in the show notes and then i'm actually planning on doing an event mm. um in the next few months in a sort of q a format so okay. um because that is something i've thought about you I know it's great it's great to put this out there but i'm sure listeners have their own burning questions that they want to ask yeah because my my big thing is i think um i'm a big believer that if you only look around you for too long you just end up being in this bubble yeah and um this is why i'm so conscious and i'm lucky my work allows me to be able to see what's happening in other parts of the world and talk to people in radically different you know environments and markets and but I, I, I know what it's like because right, I did the nine to five thing, mm. right? I would go to work and most of my work will be within a specific like, you know, vertical. And, yeah. and I know what that's like. And if that's most of your day, it's, it's really limiting. And this world is huge and there's so many exciting things happening. And I think, I think anyone who wants to be competitive and relevant and prolific over the course of their careers mm. needs to be the, somebody who is sees themselves as global talent that's mm. increasingly what i'm believing in more and more 
and it's I find that now kind of filtering into my mission as well like how do yeah people adding see to your mission yeah as becoming you know globally competitive mm. today amazing Natasha thank you so much thank you for having me we'll put Peter. all the info in the show notes and until next time thank, thank you, you so much thanks again Natasha for letting me into your world and for giving me your time you can find Natasha on Instagram at, at natasha.notes and there's also further info in the show notes below. As always, if you'd like to find out who my guests will be on the next episode of Life School, please do follow us on Instagram at lifeschoolme where you can keep up to date with all our news and find information on all our amazing guests. And finally, I would be so grateful if you could show some love and please rate, review and subscribe to Life School ME, the podcast to help us reach and hopefully inspire more listeners. Thank you for listening to Life School, conversations to inspire action.